Today's guest is Oren Avery, a senior clinic manager at M Physicians Broadway Primary Care Clinic. Oren has over 25 years of ambulatory specialty leadership, direct patient care, mental health, telemedicine, and faculty education experience. During his career, he has landed coverage in print and broadcast in Florida and Minnesota on several occasions related to healthcare experience, community board membership, community service, and several other initiatives and programs associated with facilities that he has managed. Throughout his career, Oren has been applauded for his ability to recruit, retain engaged, diverse, high-performing teams. His success in team building has also allowed him to mentor healthcare leaders in several healthcare systems located in Minnesota, Iowa, and Wisconsin. Oren holds a bachelor's in psychology and a master of science in health administration from the University of Central Florida. Hi, welcome to Help Me Understand. We're a podcast to help close the gap of injustices and inequities by talking about current events with members of our local community. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in healthcare. So I ended up in healthcare. I was a psychology major uh, in college, freshman. I was adamant about that I wanted to work in mental health. I discovered at a young age that I had a little girl on the way my freshman year in college. So I, I said, well, I need a job, a serious job with benefits. Um, well, I'm still a college freshman and I started working in a dialysis clinic as a patient care technician. During that time, there was no certification required you just needed a high school diploma which is amazing because we were using 15 gauge needles and giving saline when a patient blood pressure That's drops <laughs> and uh That's scary. Yeah. yeah very scary and um uh and, and there's isolation patients and all types of things going on initially i was very afraid but then I got to a point where I really, really loved providing care um, to people and watching them succeed on the care that I was instrumental in participating in. At probably year two or so or three, I, I thought, well, maybe I should explore a different route outside of mental health. And at that point, I was almost done with the psych degree in sociology. And the university where I was attending, uh, Central Florida, they uh, had advertisement for the healthcare administration program, a uh, graduate program. And um, I, I thought, well, let me check more into that or if I wanted to be a true clinician. During the experience of providing hands-on patient care, it was during that time I really started to feel that there was a disconnect between those of us who were providing care and leadership who was directing care. So I said, well, I would like to go into administration and maybe be helpful in making decisions from administrative level in a healthcare setting than I am hands-on. Uh, with dialysis care and nephrology, uh, there's a lot of death. 
experienced so much death in a few years um, at a young age and having patients who I'm attempting to resuscitate still pass away or patients I've saved in my own hands, uh, you know, 20, 21 years old with no formal education. Uh, I'm like, I, I'm becoming very resilient. My mom used to joke that I was going to retire at 30 because I was probably getting burnt out from school and treating patients. And I then said, well, let's, let's do administrative and, and get out of the hands-on patient care. Since then, I've always loved care, and I've also felt that those days as a tech, even though it was so long ago, and it wasn't nursing, and it wasn't ER care, it wasn't surgery, I still felt that I was, I, I gained so much from that period. And also from the psych degree, which I thought, because I did finish that, I never thought I would use that again, but my, I use that more in healthcare than I do healthcare finance, right? Especially as a leader, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's an everyday occurrence. Yes, yes. And so, um, uh, yeah, and so I, I applied to the program, uh, Master of Science Healthcare Administration, and um, I was accepted. and. I did two years in that. While I was doing that, I was counseling school-based program for uh, migrant children, Pearson, Florida, um, doing group and individual therapy. And um, that was a cool experience. And it was more of a, a anti-drug program. Uh, these were students that weren't um, didn't have severe mental health disabilities. They were just struggling a little bit in school. and responded uh, in some surveys in a way that made them more susceptible for drug abuse. So I did that while I was in grad school also, so it was pretty cool. What a busy life while you're going <laughs> in to my grad 20s. school. That's insane. Yeah, in my 20s. And you had a baby. Yeah, yeah. baby oh and babies. And, and so a mortgage and while wow. my friends were... Hanging out and party, I was having a, a family and paying a mortgage and traveling to class in the evening. It's and yes, it was a lot of work. How do you think that experience contributed to your success here? Well, in all of those experiences, early experiences, I felt that I was connected to the frontline work that needed to be done, right? Hands-on, I didn't jump from uh, educational setting right into behind the desk, corporate setting, directing people. There were moments where I had to speak one-on-one -on -one to a middle schooler and explain you know, what it is to stay in school and to continue to try and to say no to drugs. I had to as I said before, try to resuscitate a patient who was actively, you know, leaving us. And, and that type of experience actually allowed for me to look at the bigger picture um, a little bit better than probably some would. When it gets to a life and death scenario, um, I, I think it's, it makes you very resilient or it, it, um, it, it consumes you mental health wise. And so and going through that experience where I was just so busy with attempting to uh, uh, accomplish so many goals, it, 
it allowed for me to not think twice about giving up on one of the goals. It was so many moving parts that I just kept going and going. And I think now today, and I was like, wow, how did I have the energy to do all that stuff? How did I have the time? How did I have the study? How did I get to grad school, which was primarily face-to-face instruction in the evenings and not many online classes in the early 2000s, you know. So true. Yeah, so yeah. it was a lot of going to the university after work and and driving an hour away, an hour there, an hour back, and so. Having your bachelor's in psychology mm-hmm. and then moving into an administrator of healthcare, you have a different background than a lot of administrators that I'm familiar with. Um, they might be clinicians or have more of a clinical background, but not so much mental health. Mm-hmm. So you have more of a rounded perspective, I think, than a lot of people. When you think about health, you probably think about it differently than a lot of us. Um, what do you think health means? Well, I think health encompasses physical health, but also mental and social well-being. For everyone, that definition of, of good health may be a little bit different. But if the physical body is healthy, but the mental part of the body is unhealthy, there's a disconnect there. There's a problem, um, and I don't think I would. I don't think that person would be considered healthy. So I think it's important that the mental and the physical both need to be in a position where they do not cause a hindrance from someone living a functional life, mm-hmm. uh, or is important. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, already. thank you for that. We, we all just kind of have a different perspective of mm-hmm. that. And coming from a mental health background, uh, you have the opportunity to view healthcare so differently. So thank you for that. Because of the unique environment that you work in and your background, when we hear health inequity on the news or we read it on social networking or in articles, are we getting the correct information, the real information? And is that problem being accurately depicted from the reality that you see? Yes, I think it, it is to a certain degree, uh, depending on the, the news source. From what I'm seeing in, in my community and what I've seen in communities that are similar uh, to the one I currently work in, the health inequity and disparities are, are common in urban settings. Um, and, and, and set it in communities of color. Uh, there is a absence of some resources uh, in all of those urban settings. There is a restriction or a, um, a gap in access to care, to specialty care specifically. Uh, there's a lack of funding and policies and legislation that provide funding to those mental health services, those addiction services, and and communities that are underserved. In working in large cities in Florida and Minnesota, they're they're the same. There's different zip codes, but I experienced some of the same challenges in, in, in Florida and Orlando, Jacksonville, Minneapolis, which is very odd. They're, they're, same city with different temperatures. (laughs) Mm. 
What are some of your thoughts about changing that? What do we need to do as clinicians or as politicians to bridge some of those gaps? Well, I think at this time, with the push for social justice and the the awareness that most healthcare organizations are now experiencing in relation to racism and systemic racism and policies and, and procedures that, that may not be inclusive. Uh, we see a momentum uh, of organizations attempting to put that front of mind, put that work, that focus, those initiatives as a priority. And unfortunately, it had to happen after the death of George Floyd and also during a pandemic where organizations are struggling financially. Um, and it's, it's really no ideal time, right, for self-reflection and growth. With that self-reflection and growth, I would hope that organizations will have an improvement of their awareness of racist policies or um, non-diverse work environments that will then translate into better hiring processes, uh, more inclusive environments, more clinicians aware of um, how they interpret different patients from different cultures, helping with their clinical decision-making. I hope that some of these things will have a sustainable change, but it, it's, it's just so early and, and, you know, more to come. How far away from actual change in some of those policies, procedures, workflow mm-hmm. do you think we are? I think we're a great deal far away but we've taken that first step right Uh, I know for our organization that I'm with um, this recognition that the work needs to be done that there needs to be a serious assessment of our current culture and and equity and uh, diversity and justice and inclusion all of those things right I think it's a good first start Right. In order for us to provide better care in the community, we need to recognize and be aware of the community we serve. We need to be able to retain and recruit those staff, clinician, administrative leaders in a way that's mindful of all of those positive of an inclusive environment. And then I think with all of those things that will then translate into better patient care and possibly outcomes, but there needs to be an alignment of individual organizations and then legislation change and political change. There's a bunch of different moving parts. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of chaos in our government today. So that's, that's hurting the progress a little bit, right? But I, I think we have a lot of momentum being built where equity and health disparities are more of a conversation than probably they ever been. Serious conversation. They're not just a check-the-box thing. Because these these topics have not, they're not new, um, right? You know, the needs are not new in these communities. 
we're just revisiting those needs under a different lens now today. Thank you for that. We talked a little bit about health inequities and um, diversity and, and taking care of people in different pockets of our state. And the Minnesota Department of Health reports that people of color, American Indians, people with disabilities, individuals living in poverty and the LGBT communities have less opportunity for health and experience worse health outcomes in our state. Why do you think that is? And what do we need to do in our community to remedy that? I think in the state of Minnesota, part of the problem is a great deal of the groups that you just listed live in the same communities, more urban, more city of Minneapolis community than anywhere else in the state. Which you would think it would be a little bit easier to provide the appropriate services and fundings to those groups that are relevant funding. But unfortunately, the gap between the have and the have nots are steadily increasing, right? So you have the dynamic not only culturally uh, between these groups, but also wages between people of color and um, other groups are, 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 are widening. Um, we're in a, a, an environment right now where there is a lot of financial chaos. We have instability um, in our financial markets right now. And so you take all of that coupled on the fact that the, some of the groups you just listed live in a community that already lacks resources that already lack social services and education uh, resources and jobs and quality uh, homes. It's just a uh, perfect environment for disparities uh, and equity uh, in Minnesota. If you were going to change our healthcare system that serves these populations in our our urban space, uh, what would that look like? I think it, it would first start with some of the work that everyone's attempting to do right now, right? Of self-awareness and evaluation of your current processes and policies in place as a healthcare provider. The ability to review accurate data on health or quality outcomes is always important, always relevant. And I think most organizations are getting better at uh, displaying that information. But what you're doing with the outcome data, policy-wise and procedure-wise and, and, and legislation-wise, are, are just as important, right? So we got the information. We know that a high proportionate of African-American um, uh, babies die than other groups. What, okay, what are we doing about that information, right? What are the services we're offering? How are we going to those communities? and figuring out uh, a formula to, to move that dial, right? So in my perfect world, there is action with data that's reported, right? There is a recognition that you need to be culturally aware of the community you serve prior to you implementing or initiating any type of uh, plans or studies or projects in that community. 
And then um, you have an engaged team that's currently working there with that organization. They're happy to work there. They're happy to be there. And then you also have clinicians who are able to also be culturally competent and, and aware of the patients we serve. And there's an alignment between clinical and administrative. At times there's conflict between those two groups, right? Money versus care. Whatever healthcare organization you work for, there's always seems to be conflict between administration in the staff that are providing the care. I think we've seen that basically everywhere we work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, know, you think yeah. about it, you yeah. have, you know, they don't understand us. They don't understand what we need. They don't understand that one patient clinically treating one patient can be harder than treating five. You know, ratios aren't one to four, one to four. That's not how it works when you're transporting a patient from a wheelchair, you know. And, and, and so someone who does not have that experience of uh, working in the trenches and being the person who's assisting with turning over that patient in the bed who can't move on their own or transporting to the wheelchair, they have no concept that one patient can equate to the work of three or four patients. That connection is important, right? And I think if that can improve a lot of other things could fall in place of course legislation and policy change it's, it's no way to to uh, avoid that because you do need those support services around your provide you know your clinics and your your buildings to assist your patients and um, you you can't focus on internal resources for your patients without being aware of what's out there as a partner or actually as a hindrance or a barrier. For all the leaders that do similar type of work as you do as an administrator, how do you connect the two of administrative and frontline staff? Because I have found that to be just an issue everywhere and it it clearly has, your your way of doing things has created a staff that are happy and work hard and are resilient. How do you do that? So there is no true formula, right? I think where you asked me before the psychology background, how it's helped. I think back to you know most interviews you've been on. Uh, you know what is your leadership style is one of the questions, right? And 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 one of the worst things I feel personally, my own personal opinion is for you to have one leadership style and live and die by that leadership style, right? Because what you're not taking into consideration are the people, right? This group of clinicians is different from the, the next department or uh, there's cultures within cultures. I think what has helped me bridge the gap a little bit, um, and of course I've had failures just like anyone else, is respecting people and being consistent with that respect and awareness, the priority to just try to be a good person uh, to everyone. And that, you know, and that's easier said than done, right? But um, I think that's helped. 
uh, again, I think also having that experience with providing patient care that has assisted also, but recognizing the struggle, right? Because recognition and all these things we're talking about today, you know, the need for diversity and equity chaining, the recognizing that there's a, there's a um, disparity in our communities, recognizing there's different clinical outcomes. All of those different subjects require recognition that they exist. Recognizing racism exists. And then moving forward is always helpful. You, you, it's, not a, it's not a lose-win situation, right? It's a win-win situation either around me recognizing what the needs are, recognizing what you need as a person, always important. Yeah, thank you for that. As you were talking, you were saying a lot of things that overlap with one of my greatest mentors. She's been retired for a long time. It's true in great leaders, you, you find some of those core values about focusing on a person and having fairness and changing to your environment. Um, she also told me to um, start smoking and, and <laughs> Diet Coke to manage my stress, which is something I didn't take. <laughs> if you think about it sometimes, oh my gosh, I should just start smoking. <laughs> um, so when we, when we look at all of these disparities in our community that we're serving right now as clinicians, uh, the Minnesota Department of Health also states that social and economic inequalities account for a 40% prediction of health outcomes, which I find alarming. Mm -hmm. So when we look at that, what are some of those details of economic inequities and social inequities that are accounting for this 40%? So I think back to um, our clinic closure uh, during the civil unrest after uh, the George Floyd murder. I think back to what I saw in the community after the, our clinic was closed and damaged, surrounding restaurants, the grocery store, which is only one, um, as I saw those businesses closed down, and then I saw the lines of the people in need for uh, distribution of food and supplies, um, that really resonated with me in, in the fact that now that all these services are down, most of the people here in the community who rely on public transportation, which is now down, if their local grocery store now closes, right, and let's say a fast food restaurant is one of the first places to reopen, now I am eating food that is unhealthy. I've now lost my only large grocery store in essentially a food desert. What are my options but to eat unhealthy? Now my physician's office is closed, so I can't renew prescription. The pharmacy was also closed and boarded, well, so I can't go to the pharmacy. Now I've gone a couple of weeks or months without appropriate medications. I don't have the resources to, or the car, to go to other areas, right, uh, to get what I need. So I think what we'll start to see probably later on this year is a direct result 
of this gap in access we've had this summer from no, no, including the pandemic right you have so many people that have delayed care because of the pandemic and i think we'll see more here at the end of the year the beginning of next year of how all of these factors impacted uh, patients uh, preventative care went out the window and so I think back to my days of growing up in Florida and uh, after a hurricane people asked me what is the experience with a hurricane and I said we always felt it wasn't the actual hurricane that was the worst part it's the after effect where there's no grocery stores there's no gas station there's an inability to get anything and uh, you have no electricity for a week sometimes in the Florida 100 degree weather and humidity and your refrigerator doesn't work and it really is during those type of catastrophic events it really allows for you to see a, a direct how you would react in the absence of services right or the ability to um, search out services if you didn't have a car or your car was damaged um, so that 40 percent um, that you reference very 100% accurate and a big problem. Thank you for laying that out. I, um, I know that there are many, many people, probably the majority in our state that don't understand those intricacies mm -hmm. and how, it, how the butterfly effect, this equals this equals that. How else has COVID complicated these issues or brought them to light? Virtual care. Uh, so with telemedicine and virtual care, when I was first introduced to it in 2005, uh, new technology, not reimbursable, of course, and, and um, essentially the, pro, the, the project was providing home care over video uh, to pulmonology patients. Um, there was, at that time, the same type of hesitation by clinicians that exists today, fast forward, where a lot of healthcare organizations were pushed into making this type of care available to their patients. So if you think of the timeline in 2005, and we're in 2020, and organizations are still, some are, attempting to figure out how to provide good virtual care uh, is amazing. An investment in, in providing virtual care would, um, 10 years ago, would have paid high dividends today as we experience remote life. What we experience in our environment, which I'm sure many others have also, is the those same socioeconomic resources in other areas impact this area also. If you don't have access to a PC, stable Wi-Fi, data minutes or a data plan, or say your, your phone is a restricted phone and you're unable to stream, um, right? All of those things come into play and when you have no other option but to visit your provider in a video visit format. Those, to many of us, that was not a big deal other than our discomfort with face-to-face -face visit, but the ability to turn on our phone or our laptops at home wasn't a big deal. 
this is also playing out in our school systems where you know the schools aren't adequately prepared some of them to deal with a virtual environment and now they're being forced to and everybody's playing catch-up and it's clunky and inconsistent the same applies to healthcare uh, for many organizations when in reality right now today it's viewed as new but it's been around for a very long time I went to a telemedicine vendor uh, conference in 2005 or 6 and there was plenty of telemedicine vendors there then um, so you fast forward and organizations are scrambling to, to get that in order get that in order for their patients that's it's disheartening and it's it's sad it's very it very much is I think when new technology like that comes out, I mean, 2005, 2006, I can see how that would be new. I wonder how much, like, with the insurance, with the reimbursement and stuff, you know, why, if that caused some hesitation. You know, Definitely. Like, why, why are we going to even go invest all this if we are going to get paid back, you know, there's no profit right. that, in it? That's definitely uh, one of the primary drivers behind it. That's also, um, you know, at this time, there are efforts by payers to give some temporary easement on restrictions, but who, know, who knows what will happen, knock on wood, if COVID, is, there's a vaccine or there's progress made, uh, you know, will those reimbursements be lifted um, or, or uh, restricted again or less than our face-to-face -face visit or whatever you know there may be that moment for that and so I, I think but it shouldn't be you know I think we should be prepared for the next COVID type of event in isolation and we, we hope it doesn't happen but we've completely been taken off guard with this and it has been kind of a wild year of adapting to a whole bunch of different things. Have you seen anything positive come out of this year? I think I've seen a lot of resiliency from the clinicians who are treating patients who pick this profession, healthcare, as their calling. Um, it's been great to see people on my team step up and despite everything that's going on uh, in the community and the needs of they have of their fam from their families, um, there's been a lot of examples of resiliency all around. We're seeing providers raising their hands to step up and participate and it's just a lot of amazing work we're, we're seeing clinicians here and there that are also getting sick and losing their lives for that commitment and um, it's unfortunate and that they were sacrificed for such a horrible pandemic but um, I think it's been great to see the resiliency in healthcare from everybody it definitely has been a test for most, right? How do you function or respond to adversity? Uh, I think a lot of people are finding out. 
in every we way. We are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> agreed. What steps or initiatives are you taking, or should we take, to encourage change to eliminate this, these discrepancies in healthcare? The steps uh, I am taking, and um, also my peers and, and leaders in the organization, is, is really becoming more aware of our environment of work and our environment of care and how we can improve our relationships uh, with each other, um, become more inclusive and aware and culturally um, aware and responsible to everyone. All of this work is simply becoming better people. I think you, uh, there's a saying, you, you can't, you can't help someone before helping yourself, if you yourself needs help. And, and I think we are at a point for our organization where there's steps that are being taken uh, by so many, all a little different, but all have the same goal, becoming a positive, inclusive, diverse environment. And I think in the long term, it'll lead to some changes and some equitable decision-making that'll be positive for all of the patients we serve. And I think that work, I'm, I'm, I'm very in tune with that work right now, and I really feel it's the right work that needs to be done. What kind of suggestions do you have for either other clinicians or people in our community to make changes to move forward to bridging the gaps of inequities? I would suggest speaking to um, your peers in the community that are impacted by some of these inequities. Um, learning, um, there's, a lot, there's tons of research, um, journals, YouTube videos that discuss some of the disparities and inequities. Just becoming more conscious and aware and knowledgeable about the subject and not look at it as sort of a check the box or educational moment for yourself, right? Be able to fluently discuss the matter and potential ideas without doing a lot of research for leaders and administrators in the same boat as myself. And look at ways you can you can assist with offering as many support services as you can from your particular organization, department, uh, site. More and more organizations are looking outside of traditional care uh, to, to have included in their settings, you know, whether that's social service needs, food insecurity um, needs, um, studies and projects that focus on you know, isolation and, and, and um, how isolation is a, a factor in, in outcomes, in clinical outcomes. Any type of social service assistant that your, your patients may possibly need in environments that are underserved, I think that will be very, very helpful 
for the groups you serve, in addition to making sure that you are hiring competent, self-aware, positive, diverse staff uh, to, to help you with this work or partner with you. That's great advice. Thank you for that. Is there anything else we didn't touch on that um, you just feel really strongly about that you want to tell us or our community today? I think it's, I think we captured uh, what I assume we would in this conversation. I, I, after the events of Mr. Floyd, I think it impacted many of us significantly. And, um, you know, in the past, events in the community at times has been separate from work, right? And, and, and so this is one of those issues that has overlapped our work responsibilities, right? And I think we're at an important time now that the teams we lead, the, t- the people we work with, the people who lead us, uh, everybody's looking to each other to see what's next, what's going to happen next. You know, is this conversation about anti-racism is going to die down um, or is this going to stay a priority and there's going to be sustainable change, you know, into the next a major event around this country or catastrophe or whatever. And my gut is saying that, uh, again, there seems to be momentum of true change and um, I'm excited about it and there's a lot of people who may have been quiet in the past who are not quiet today and they're engaged and they want to talk about it and they want to participate and that's great to see it's great to see it's a long time coming I think it's really interesting the people that are actually seeking help this knowledge or that you know they were aware of it aware of the disparities but well, that happens there, or it doesn't really, you know, impact me. But I feel like even within our team, we have broadened our horizons and tried to absorb more information. What can we do to make an impact? And how are we, what are we doing that, you know, is it going the right way in the right direction? I really do hope that the momentum continues. And that's Kind of one of our goals of this podcast is to keep the momentum going, keep the conversations going so that people don't lose sight of these issues. Well, that's great. I appreciate your work. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you guys for inviting me. So appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. It was awesome. a good talk. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Help Me Understand.